I'm going to start off with a few pictures of Justice Scalia because I, I think he had a great love for pictures and he had a very, uh, he could be very expressive, I think, in the way he presented himself. And I, I know he, he, he cared about pictures because he used to joke in chambers that he always thought the Washington Post had two pictures of him. There was the sort of less happy Justice Scalia when they didn't really agree with him. And, and then there was the very happy, jovial Scalia when they, when they liked his decision. And I never knew that whether that was true, so I did some research. I started doing some research just to, to, to uh, see if that's true, and I, I think it's, that he was wrong. They have four pictures of him. So this, I think, is the less happy Justice Scalia, um, sort of scowling, you know, looking sideways with a, with a kind of frown. And then if he really was, was doing what the Washington Post sometimes referred to as zingers, which I think of as intellectual darts, they throw the dart-throwing picture of Justice Scalia. That, you know, when he, was, when he had a very sharply worded dissent, I think that's what this one was for. But then if they agreed with him, they, they could be kind. You know, there was this sort of very fatherly figure, sort of just a uh, uh, nice, uh, nice picture there. And then if they really agreed with him, that, then I think they used this picture. That's, that's, the, that's the full, jovial, happy Justice Scalia picture. Um, and I think, he, uh, I think he probably liked this one the best. Um, I'm going to take you now in a little time machine, back nearly half a century, to 1967, when Justice Scalia first entered the life of an academic here on this campus. And he had come out of practice. He had been in practice for six years at the Jones Day Law Firm, uh, when he showed up here. And I think you can see in the first picture I'm going to show you, which was from the first yearbook. The law school used to have yearbooks that had all the faculty pictures in it. And I think you could see that he might really look like he just came from practice here. Um, the only thing that you can detect that suggests he might be going to the academic realm is his tie is not quite perfectly <laughs> on. Um, so that that's, you know, that's the first picture. Um, and then the next year, he had a picture, and I think this is very interesting. And I believe, you know, he's a little more relaxed here. Um, I think he's playing the piano or about to play the piano, which he, which he, he loved to do. Um, but he still looks very serious, and he's still in a, a suit and tie. Um, and then I found this. I went back to the, um, to the uh, Board of Visitors Minutes. And this is a, it's amazing what you can get on the Internet these days. This is from the Board of Visitors of the University of Virginia, Third one from the top, you see Justice Scalia is promoted from associate professor, which would be an untenured position, to professor of law, which is a, uh, a tenured position. And now, um, and also, Tom White is here. I see Tom White here in the audience, and you see he's a, a perfect contemporary of Justice Scalia um, on the very same page. I, I noticed that, and he's, he's here with us today. Um, and then I noticed in the next picture, I, I, I think you have to look carefully, but I think there is a little bit of a difference in, in his approach that Justice Scalia in the next year's picture when he has tenure. See if you can detect it. It's, it's pretty subtle. He's, I think he's a little less serious here. Um, 
You know, I think that's, you know, shows you what tenure does. If you look carefully, you can see he's actually splitting logs. This is a sledgehammer, and there's a spike going through this log. And, of course, he's, he's got his uh, dog with him. So I think he's a little bit more relaxed now that he has tenure. That's, that's from 1970. The next year, he was thinking about going into government service as an attorney in the government. He went to be general counsel of an agency, then he worked for the administrative conference, and he eventually headed the office of legal counsel as a government lawyer. And I think you can see in the next picture, again, a slight turn to be a little bit more serious because he's thinking about being a lawyer once again and going back to that. So he's getting a little bit more serious um, in, in that respect. So uh, he did go back into government service, and then he came out again and became uh, went back to academic uh, work the next time at, at the University of Chicago. I think that as he was becoming a professor, as he was learning the trade that I am now in, the academic trade, he was learning very much how to turn a phrase and how to explain things to people. And you can see that in his articles. I have a 1970 article, which would have been written while he was here. And he talks in this article about how two events that seem unconnected were in fact connected. And he uses this metaphor. He said that recognizing the, the connection between this or your first approach of looking at these two events, these, these two uh, things in the law, might be akin to a child's astonishment at watching a tightrope walker for the first time. How marvelous that he should not only walk along such a narrow wire, but carry and balance a long stick at the same time. And I just love that sort of a, a metaphor as to the kind of language that he used um, in his law review articles. You can see that also in the uh, 1978 article, which was just after he came out of of government service. And this is a very famous case called the Vermont Yankee case. And if any of you know administrative law, this is one of the top five most famous administrative law cases. And I teach that case. Um, and there's a line in the, in the Supreme Court's opinion that I think is always astonishing for students to read. Um, and I have to explain it to them. And the line is this. This is not by Justice Scalia, but this is it's by uh, uh, then Justice Rehnquist. It says, before determining whether the Court of Appeals reached a permissible result, we must determine exactly what result it did reach. And in this case, that is no mean feat. <laughs> now, I tell my students, that's not a compliment from the Supreme Court. And I also quote to them the, uh, the, the Justice Scalia's article on this case, which came out after this case was decided in the Supreme Court review. It's one of his most famous cases. It's widely cited. And I still teach it or still refer to it because it helps me teach. And that, I think, is, is, is important. And in that article, he set forth how the D.C. Circuit was diverging from what the Supreme Court was doing for about a decade. And he goes through quote after quote where he says, D.C. Circuit says this, then the Supreme Court says this, and then the D.C. Circuit seems to say almost the exact opposite. And he ends that series with saying, while the Court of Appeals had not, of course, contravened any holding of the Supreme Court, it had been, to put it mildly, a remarkably ineffective instrument for implementing the underlying principles of interpretation which these Supreme Court opinions clearly express. 
And I always use that line to explain what was going on in this opinion and why the Supreme Court included this sort of mean-spirited line. And it's, and it's because the, they, they, they didn't think the D.C. Circuit was getting uh, the message. And, but it's also the way that he expresses it. It's the lovely understate, a remarkably ineffective instrument of the Supreme Court's uh, will. I think that um, those lines were, were written as an academic um, continued. His, his ability to express things in colorful and memorable ways continued as a justice. And that's really what I'm going to talk about today, about how even as a justice, he remained a teacher. And I think it was a great love of his life. And I also know this because when I told him I was going into be academic life, when I told him several years after clerking that I was going to apply to be an academic, he, he told me one piece of advice. He said, you'll love it, but there's one thing you should do, which is the job is great. Teaching, writing, influencing people, influencing uh, and, and trying to convey the knowledge onto a new generation, it's, it's lovely. But you also have to grade papers. And he said, there's only one way to get through that. You take your salary for that semester, and you divide by the number of exams you have to grade. So then each time you get done grading one and throw it on the already done pile, you could say, you know, $200 or $500. And he said, that's the way I thought about teaching. He said, I'd do the rest for free, but they had to pay me to grade those things. Um, and I think that is that actually uh, uh, explained why Justice Scalia continued to lecture um, uh, widely, even though he was a justice, and even though there's not additional pay for going out and teaching law school classes or lecturing to uh, uh, student groups. But he really loved uh, to teach. And I actually um, wanted to give one personal remembrance, and this is the last thing I'm going to talk about, but one personal remembrance of how I saw that in the year that I clerked. And to, to show you that, I'm going to use another slide here, which is that Justice Scalia had a tradition of signing an opinion for each law clerk with a little inscription on it. And usually people would look at, at you know, the opinions that had been decided that year and, and where Justice Scalia had participated and really pick out, you know, a blockbuster opinion, something that would be memorable, something they could tell their children, you know, here's this great Supreme Court decision, and Justice Scalia signed it. Um, so here's the one I have. This is a picture. This is actually hanging on my wall here at the University of Virginia. And it, the case is Conroy versus Aniskoff. And if you don't remember that one from Supreme Court law, let me just tell you what it is. Conroy versus Aniskoff unanimously held that Section 205 of the Soldiers and Sailors Civil Relief Act of 1940 means exactly what its unambiguous text provides, which is that a soldier's period of military service shall not be included in computing any period of redemption for real property that has been forfeited due to non-payment of taxes. Now, you're thinking, this is a very strange opinion to ask to be uh, uh, signed. But the, uh, the story that I'm going to tell you is about the inscription. And I know it's too small to read there, so if we zoom in a little bit, it's maybe a touch hard to read, but it says, to John Duffy, dash, the hapless law clerk. <laughs> um, and, you know, you might think, you might think, okay, I understand why Justice Scalia signed this, the hapless law clerk. 
right? Because if this guy really wanted to, you know, have Conroy versus Aniskoff signed, a case that's as boring as the day is long, then maybe this guy has no judgment at all. And Justice Scalia is just expressing the frustration of having to deal with this law clerk for an entire year, and he's glad to be uh, done with it. Um, but that's not actually, I think, I hope, uh, what, what, is, uh, what happened in this case. And the opinions in the Conroy tell a different story. And the opinion for the court uh, was written by uh, Justice John Paul Stevens. And the first sentence of the analysis in the case begins by saying that the court was going to follow the unambiguous, unequivocal, and unlimited statutory text. And you're thinking, now Justice Scalia concurs in this, doesn't join this opinion. And you're thinking, how could that be? How could that be? You know, if you're a textualist, this is like you had me at hello. It's the first sentence of the opinion. What could possibly go wrong? And the problem came a little bit later when the, when the court majority addressed the city's argument that the court should look to the legislative history to depart from the plain language of the statute. And Justice Stevens rejected that argument, and he said, look, the, the Justice Stevens said, quote, the complete legislative history confirms a congressional intent to protect all military personnel on active duty, just as the statutory language provides. And he gives a couple sites to the legislative record and uh, a page, page and a half of, of analysis of the legislative record. For Justice Scalia, most justices, I think, might have just said, well, most of the opinion is perfect. It's a textualist opinion. It's got a sentence or two that's, you know, suggests that you got that they looked at the legislative history, but that's okay. Not Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia said this opinion gives a false and disruptive lesson in law. It's about what the opinion teaches, not its result, but also what it, the lesson it gives. For the lesson it says to the to the bar is that even an unambiguous and unequivocal statute can never be dispositive. So Justice Scalia, ever the teacher, wasn't going to let that go unchallenged. And one of, he began his opinion by saying one of the difficulties with legislative history is not just its illegitimacy, which he thought it was illegitimate, uh, but also its indeterminacy. Um, that the cacophony of legislators' voices were more likely to confuse than clarify any particular legal issue. And he also knew about, you know, a good turn of phrase, so he actually quoted Judge Harold Leventhal, an old D.C. Circuit colleague of his, and he said that Judge Leventhal used to describe the use of legislative history as the equivalent of a, entering a crowded cocktail party and looking over the heads of the guests and finding your friends. With the point being, there were always some friends there. Um, so he decided that uh, that we were that that he was going to look more carefully at the complete legislative history of this statute. Now it turns out this was a deep rabbit hole. This statute, which you probably have never heard of, it was enacted in World War One, and every time the United States had a conflict, it got amended with more and more provisions and more tweaks, sometimes multiple times uh, if it was a longer war. And the legislative record on top of that had statutes, cited statutes dating back to the Civil War, as well as foreign statutes. So if you did the complete legislative history, it would be a mountain of books on top of, let's say, a poor law clerk's desk. 
the opinion, his concurrence goes on for page and page, page after page, demonstrating that the legislative history actually shows that the, that the Congress did not, or at least many of the members of Congress, did not think this was an inflexible rule, did not think that it was unambiguous, thought that judges should have discretion to handle cases in a fair way and that there were no sharp rules in this. And he closed, the, and he closed his analysis by saying, that every lower court that had looked at the legislative history had reached the opposite result from the court majority. And indeed, the U.S. government had previously, prior to this case, in this case they changed their view, but in th prior to this case, the U.S. government had always taken the position contrary to the majority opinion, that the, that the language wasn't so clear and that the legislative history uh, should control. Um, none of this mattered to Justice Scalia. And to prove that point, on the last page of the opinion, the last, this is the last full page, the last paragraph, he has a confession. He confesses that he has not personally investigated the entire legislative history, or even those portions quoted above. The experts I have examined and, and quoted were unearthed by a hapless law clerk <laughs> to whom I assigned the task. And to me, this was, this is pure Justice Scalia. This was, it was a little bit at my expense, um, but it was, it was fun. He was, harvest, he was harnessing his wit to make an important point here, which is that the judges and justices, and indeed other members of the bar, should not be trying to parse through the entire legislative history, mountainous as it might be in any particular case. It's beneath them. It's, worth, it's work that's hardly fit, even for a hapless law clerk. Now that, I think, is the, um, that uh, uh, opinion with its inscription uh, hangs on my wall, close to the door of my law school office, and I see it coming in and going out of my office. And I often think about what it meant for Justice Scalia to try to have a good turn of phrase, a witty turn of phrase that could teach people something. And I hope that when I go out to teach each time I have a class that I'm able to do that just a little bit. And that opinion with its inscription is one of my most prized possessions. Thank you.